Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gitler. And this is episode four in our series for 2016. And today's date is Friday, the 26th of February. And Leon, we've got Scott Brennan to talk to this week, haven't we? That's right. Scott Brennan, all the way from the US, is going to be talking to us all about teams and uh, how to fire up teams in the corporate world. It's going to be very interesting. Yes, indeed. And then after that, um, Sinclair Davidson with his own unique look at what's going on in the economics. That's right. And uh, particularly with uh, where the government is tracking on tax reform. But first of all, let's have a chat to Scott Brennan. Scott Brennan, tell us what are the uh, main characters of surging teams? Well, the main characteristic of a surging team is that the, the members on the team are individually flourishing. And the definition of flourishing would be that they feel increased well-being. Each team member feels like you know they're experiencing that increased well-being. And when the team feels that, when each member of the team feels that way, that's when they reach the surging level. And then they can they feel unstoppable at that point. And how does one bring them to that? Now, that's a great question. And a lot of times, uh, leaders of surging teams are promoted from the technical ranks. And I was there once. I was a computer programmer and eventually uh, promoted because of technical skills. And then you reach a level where you're leading a team, and it's completely the skill set you need to be successful as a leader is completely different. So you learn the hard way, but the biggest skill that, uh, and I call it, it's my first bold skill, is the ability to identify opportunities for your team. So a lot of times leaders try to avoid responsibilities because anytime you put yourself out uh, on a limb, it's a risk. You could fail. But that's where if you if you keep an optimistic viewpoint of the world and you just look around for ordinary opportunities that we each have every day, that's the biggest characteristic of uh, of a of a leader of a team that will eventually succeed. So the leader always has to be alert to what's around and uh, where the opportunities are. Exactly. We all have opportunities every day. Some people just uh, see uh, problems, but a leader that develops an optimistic point of view that'll be a successful leader. So really, what you're talking about is these guys. If a good leader builds a good culture, doesn't he? And he's got to build it out of the human potential that he has in his team. That's that- right. I mean, I I heard your uh, an earlier guest, Nigel. He was talking about this exact phenomenon. I mean, tell me, um, is there a science in getting results? Well, the, the there's a a set of skills that uh, if you attended any if you attend any graduate school and you attend their MBA programs, they're going to put you through. Uh, if, if you're a, a part-time student, you'll go through five years of learning the skills. And they're, they're what you'd expect, finance, you know, human resource management, accounting. You know, you'll go through every one of the sciences. But a lot of times leaders are put into positions and they don't have five years. You have to show success immediately. And that's uh, my, what my book was developed to give immediate access to leaders of the skills that you need to be successful to lead that team. And number one is right after keeping an optimistic attitude and being willing to engage your team in maybe some risky projects, but projects that the company values highly, right after that skill set, you need to develop the uh, ability for the leader 
to maintain control of their team. I call it the group governance rules. Not to be shy. You're the leader. You're providing trusted management, to be fair. You're providing inspired leadership. Nobody wants a, a wallflower as a leader. They want to follow someone with passion. And then lastly, a leader needs to engage every member of the team and have them feel like they own the uh the eventual outcomes, that they own it themselves, each member. This sort of demand from the workforce, though, is a fairly recent phenomenon. I mean, people now don't put up with the rubbish from a leader. They want, you know, good direction, don't they? What's changed recently? Well, the title of this program is Empowering Teams in a Global Economy. That's changed. So that what you have now is there is no time because there are teams all around the world that are vying, that are competing with you. For instance, I've been on teams that uh, that engaged technical resources from India, right, or or other uh, or Japan. I mean, you're you're not only looking at local resources; you're you're looking wherever in the world you can bring in the resources that have the skills and that are going to be able to uh, contribute those skills at a lower cost. That's uh, that's something that every company is urgently searching for. How do you reduce costs, provide the service? and beat the competition in in doing so. That's uh, that's the reality of today's marketplace. But the reality, too, is that uh, it takes certain skills to work with teams in other locations, uh, other locations in America, but other locations right around the world. Take certain skills to develop that. Yes, the uh, skill of communication is becoming more and more important. Uh, for instance, when I led a technical team recently that was uh, working with uh, – a team in India, I had to constantly remind my team here in the States that they could only speak one language and it was questionable as to their grammar and the teams that we were working with could speak at least two languages. So I had to keep them a little bit humble and open, uh, keep an open mind when working with other teams. Steve Jobs at Apple was a leader. I mean, he took that company from bankruptcy to the biggest company in the world, yet he wasn't a pleasant person. He was demanding and difficult. But he built a culture. So would you see him as uh, a type that would fall within your parameters? It's hard. Uh, if we wait for the next Steve Jobs, I mean, uh, they come around once in a lifetime, right? These kind of leaders that are born to to uh, disrupt the world like he did. Yeah. But one thing, so what we're trying to do with the surging team is to bring a reliably repeatable skill set to uh, just an ordinary leader, not someone that's uh, that was so enigmatic as uh, Mr. Jobs. But I will tell you that what what Steve did bring and what what uh, we can learn from him is that he was not afraid to innovate. So he he would bring uh, disruptive innovation, and he would use that to uh, to get beyond a barrier that everyone else saw as a barrier. And if teams uh, what I'm trying to do is teach ordinary people when it's time to use this kind of revolutionary change within their company. It's, a, it's uncomfortable because when you use revolutionary change, the gatekeepers inside the company will resist. So you have to really uh, be mindful when you're crossing over those lines. But that's what Steve Jobs was able to do to disrupt what uh, people were comfortable with and to bring something so totally new that eventually changed the world. I mean, a lot of it would depend on the makeup of the team. I mean, is there a certain strategy in the hiring and firing of team members? Great question. 
what I uh, what I'm trying to teach is that we're not looking for the top uh, uh, people in their field. When I'm uh, talking about uh, how to develop teams, that can be done. That's a rare phenomenon when you can you're bringing in the top people around the world. Usually, you're bringing in just ordinary people that have the basic skills you need, and then trying to uh, then as a leader inspire that those that team of ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And when the leader is able to increase the well-being of each team member through under and what I recommend that the leader do, for instance, as a practical way to how do you inspire just an ordinary people to go beyond what they're capable, what they think they're capable of? One way to do it is to keep in mind there when you look at an organization chart in front of you of your team members, not just their titles on your team, but also the strengths that each of these members bring. So when you're looking at that person, what you're seeing is not just their name and their title, but the strengths that each of and everyone's bringing a different set of strengths. And that, when you keep reminding people of what their strengths are and encouraging them to use it, that's how they're, people like to hear that. They don't, people don't respond to criticism as well as they do reminding them of what they're doing great with the strengths that they have. And that, that's really the, the surging team leader is, is using uh, a strengths-based uh, approach. Fascinating lessons for all leaders. Uh, look, Scott Brennan, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, well, as you said, Leon, that's very interesting. It's fascinating, in fact, isn't it? I think it's got really interesting stuff for all businesses, actually, about how to galvanize teams, which are very much the way of the future, and uh, how to get the best out of them and how to manage them. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And now Sinclair and uh, his view of the tax, uh, would you call it a mess or just a problem? Well, yeah, there's no real tax reform. But anyway, let's have a chat to Sinclair Davidson. Sinclair Davidson, uh, you were right. Uh, at the end of last year, you said the Turnbull government would not proceed with GST reform. You correctly said that they would back away from it for political reasons. They have done this. Where does this leave us? What options do they have now for tax reform? I think the governments are actually in, in a lot of trouble because they've actually been spruiking the idea that somehow they're going to engage in a program of tax reform. And in actual fact, the tax system in Australia is fairly comprehensive already. We, we more or less tax everything which the government thinks it can get away with taxing. And they're actually going to have to do a lot more work to sort of convince the Australian electorate that there is more tax revenue to be had. The the, the thing about taxation is that it is really a, a political economy compromise on very many margins. So on the one hand, you've got to take money out of the economy, and on the other hand, you've got to take it out in such a way that the electorate are accepting of it. And I think over time, we've actually got that political economy compromise pretty right. And if the government wants to change the tax system, they've actually got to do a lot of work on rewriting compromises and decisions that have been taken in the past. And I haven't heard anybody since John Howard in the late 90s and early 2000s when we had the big GST reform, I haven't really heard anybody making a good argument for changing much about the tax system. We've had a lot of talk, we've had reviews, we've had a carbon tax come and go, we've had a mining tax come and go, but more or less the structure that's been in place for the last 15 years is still in place, people are happy with it, and the government are going to struggle to change it. Nonetheless, the government uh, has 
tax reform down as its blueprint for change. Yes, it does. And I, I think the problem was is that they came to office thinking that they would be able to emulate what Howard and Costello did um, 15 years ago, 16 years ago now, and they failed. I think they've underestimated how hard it is to actually take more money from the population because bearing in mind right now the tax system is not raising as much money as politicians would like to spend, but the tax system is still raising a lot of money, and of course the tax burden hasn't gone down now. Our tax system will raise more money as our income in the economy grows, um, and it will raise as much money as it has in the past, and that's what people bear in mind. They're, they're thinking about the burden, whereas the government are thinking they'd like to spend more money. And that which raises another issue about government spending. Uh, that is well above 25%. It's been above that rate since uh, Kevin Rudd. It shows no sign of coming down. Uh, Scott Morrison has talked about it, but there's been no sign that this is going to happen. No, it's, it's, it's actually quite amazing. We, we, we are spending this year about $430 billion, um, which is just on 26% of GDP. Now, that number went up quite dramatically during the GFC and more or less stayed there. We've actually seen a permanent increase in government spending. Now, the GFC spending was supposed to be a temporary measure which would be unwound as we move forward. But in actual fact, it hasn't been unwound. Now, we might be calling it different things. We might be using slightly different rhetoric to explain why the government is spending so much money. But the fact of the matter is government spending has permanently increased and actually does need to be wound down. We are living beyond our means. We are certainly living beyond what our tax system will currently raise. And I just don't see the government being able to undertake any meaningful tax reform without hurting more or less low- and middle-income earners. So we, we've moved away from the GST, and now the talk is about changing negative gearing. Now, 80% of people who engage in negative gearing activities earn less than $100,000 a year. So we're actually not talking about some sort of hitting the rich, those evil rich people. We're actually talking about hitting middle-income earners. And uh, they make up a large majority of, of, of voters, and uh, they're not going to be happy about this. So the, the government are actually spoken, talked themselves into a corner here. Well, Scott Morrison, uh, following the opposition releasing their negative gearing policy, has been talking about, uh, well, last week in Parliament he talked about targeting the excesses of negative gearing, which would suggest, say, capping the amount uh, people can negative gear and, and uh, perhaps uh, limiting the amount. Again, I'm not even quite sure what this even means. Well, what is an excess negative gearing? I mean, if you've got one property, is that too much? Two properties, three properties. Um, the, 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 the difficulty is, is that it's excess sounds terrible. You know, we, we, we just getting rid of excess, but what does that actually mean in practice? Who's going to be affected? Um, how is this going to be affected? So if you are a successful landlord and you've got three or four properties, are you all of a sudden somehow providing a, a bad social service to the economy because you've been successful in your business and you've been able to expand your business? Surely we'd be saying to most businesses, especially these are effectively small businesses, um, you know, you should expand your business. You should be doing better. You should be bringing more housing stock onto the market. Rental properties are actually a good thing and not a bad thing. So 
we were actually going to be penalising success there. Uh, the opposition's proposal that we only allow negative gearing for new housing um, is also problematic because what is a new house? Um, if I build a house and I uh, own it for a couple of years and rent it out and then sell it on, um, is it now a second-hand house? Um, you know, so you know, also I, th- I think between the government and the opposition, there's this mad scramble for money. They're thinking out aloud. They're not quite sure what they're doing, and I, I think it's starting to show. Right. What about uh, superannuation? Again, the superannuation scheme is, is something that works well. I, I think we need to realize that the, the superannuation scheme is actually more or less still in rollout. Um, it was brought in compulsorily for everybody in 1992. If you think that the average working life of any one individual is about 40 years, we're halfway into a rollout of people who joined the workforce in the early 1990s. So it's actually in many senses too early to tell if superannuation is working well or badly. Um, I think that a lot of people don't like the idea that um, their savings are going to be excessively taxed. I, I particularly find it very annoying when people from Canberra tell everybody else that somehow their superannuation scheme is a rot, when the people in Canberra's superannuation schemes are almost all defined benefit, almost all underlined by the taxpayer or underpaid uh, or, or underpinned by the, the future fund. Um, those guys don't have to worry too much about their supers, so why everybody else's super is a rot is, is beyond me. Um, the, the, the difficulty Difficulty with the proposals there is a 15% concession. So your marginal tax rate minus 15% is the one that we hear a lot about. Um, I don't think they've thought too carefully about this because some years when the stock market does badly, um, some people end up with less money in their superannuation accounts than they did at the beginning of the year. Okay, now this happens, the market goes up and down, your superannuation fund goes up and down. If they start taxing contributions at, uh, at a discounted rate of minus 15%, what's going to happen is if you get a pay rise during the year, you might be paying into taxation on your super fund when your super fund has gone backwards. Um, that is actually going to cause a lot of anger and annoyance in the population. At the end of the year, you're paying in tax and you actually haven't got the money. Um, I, I think they haven't thought about that one at all. So uh, obviously they've, uh, we're not going to be seeing a white paper or a green paper. It's all going to be coming up in the budget, their tax reform proposals. What do you expect to see? I would hope to see very little. I think that tax reform can only take place from a position of budgetary strength. Right now, we're in a budget deficit, and and it's growing. It's not getting any smaller. It's $40-odd billion this year, and there's still a whole bunch of things to come on. It's getting bigger. Governments trying to undertake so-called tax reform when the budget is in deficit are actually engaged in a tax grab. Nobody believes their actual bona fides. In order to undertake true tax reform, you have to do so from a position of strength, which means a balanced budget. I think the government needs to focus and concentrate on getting their fiscal business in order, getting close to a balanced budget, even balancing the budget, and then coming to the electorate with tax reform ideas. Up until that point, this is just a tax grab. Nobody wants to pay more tax. We know what they're up to, and nobody believes that they're actually going to be doing the right thing by the taxpayer. Which would suggest that uh, we should not be seeing tax reform 
in this term. I would not be talking about tax reform at all. I, I think certainly it's scaring the horses. It's contributing to, to, to declines in uh, confidence. I think the government needs to be a steady pair of hands, reduce spending, come up with a plan to reduce debt and deficit, and then talk about tax reform. So tax reform should really be off the agenda for this term or the remainder of this term and maybe even the next term. Sinclair Davidson, thank you very much. Thank you. So what do you think, Leon? Well, uh, yes, <laughs> he's really put it squarely on the government. They actually have to tackle their spending first before there can be any tax reform. Yeah, that's right. In fact, that's what Scott Morrison said right at the very beginning. The government had a spending problem. That's right. That's right. And uh, until they do that, until they sort that out, uh, you, you can't do much. Yeah, and the, the politics, as Chris Anderson the other day said, are diabolical. And Bill Shorten, of course, is making hay with that and, and I think causing a lot of confusion and, you know, upset. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. But it's been a big week with news, Gary. Uh, yeah, big week. So let's get on with it, eh? Well, first of all, Gary, Britain will be voted to staying on the European Union on June the 23rd, and British Prime Minister David Cameron announced the date after striking an agreement on the UK's relationship with Europe on Friday night. Now, Cameron, who will campaign for Britain to stay in the Union, you described the vote as one of the biggest decisions, quote, in our lifetime, but it's going to be a tough campaign because six government ministers, as Ian Duncan Smith, Michael Gove, Chris Gayling, John Whittingale, Theresa Villiers and Priti Patel will back the campaign to leave the EU, as will politically influential London Mayor Boris Johnson. And the polls are tight. An opinion poll from ICMM found that 43% of people want to remain in the EU, 39% would opt to leave. The rest are unsure, and then you have to take a narrow margin into account. Well, that's right, yeah. And, and also, the other point I think that's possibly important on the referendum day is Britain doesn't have compulsory voting. That's right, yeah. You know, and the other thing is that uh, the working class, and, and in Britain there's still a class structure, the working class would by and large, I think, um, not want to stay in Europe. I mean, they're sort of terribly British and whatnot. And then you've got the British National Party. That's right. I mean, the, the uh, all the big business wants to stay in Europe, but uh, small to medium-sized businesses don't really give a damn because uh, they don't really benefit from free trade borders, and the working class are worried about the quality of the sausages they're getting. <laughs> exactly right, yeah. Now, um, now, tax reform, Gary, and there's nothing really happening, and the government has effectively abandoned tax reform. Now, Malcolm Turnbull revealed that changes to capital gains tax of the sort proposed by Labor are not on the government's agenda, and he told Parliament, I can say that increasing capital gains tax is not part of our thinking whatsoever, he said during question time. Now, bear in mind, Turnbull has also ruled out any increase in the GST, and uh, the government is set to rule out any major changes to negative gearing. So that leaves superannuation, trading away work-related uh, tax deductions as the only way he can raise the funds to cut taxes. Yeah. And then uh, Turnbull appeared to do a backflip on capital gains increases and said they were now back in play with regards to the earnings of superannuation funds. And he claimed he was referring only to Labor's policy to halve the 50% CGT deduction for investors who sell an asset. And he indicated to Parliament on Tuesday the government was looking at targeting the 33% CGD discount for super funds that sell assets. And the, um, he said that the 15% tax rate on contributions was effectively 10% when the CGT factors was factored in. So they're all over the place. So I don't think there's going to be much in the way of tax reform at all. No, I, I don't think so. They'll bring out a pretty limp budget in uh, in May and then 
will go to an election, and after that, if they if the Libs win, well, then I think it's going to get a lot tougher. Well, we'll see. Now, wages growth has eased to its slowest annual pace since the current index series was launched 18 years ago, according to the ABS. The ABS has season adjusted wage price index rose a mere 0.5% in the December quarter last year, and that reached an annual rate of 2.2%. That's not much, Gary. Not much at all, no. And uh, construction work done in Australia has fallen in December quarter, as with engineering work drying up amid the mining investment bust. But it's only held up by residential building, which is holding up strongly because of low interest rates, boosting the construction sector. And ABS data shows total construction work for the three months of December decreased 3.6% to $49.4 billion, uh, showing a faster than expected deterioration compared to economic forecasts of 2% drop. Now, construction work is 4.3% lower than at the same time a year ago. Yeah. And there's been a sharp dive in engineering work that includes mines, roads, bridges, which plunged into 9.5% quarter-on-quarter. But total building works on homes and non-residential buildings, such as offices and shops, actually offset that, rising 2.7% in the quarter. So that's only a slight increase, but that's what the residential building's doing. Yeah, and of course, that's where negative gearing worries come right in there. Absolutely. Now, uh, the mandatory super scheme is under fire. News Corps has reported that Turnbull government is reportedly being urged to consider the opt-out idea in pre-budget submissions by industry groups, and the move could give thousands of part-time casual workers earning less than $37,000 a 9.5% pay rise, which is the amount employers pay into super, or up to 63 bucks a week. And the reports coincide with the government's key financial advisor, David Murray, saying that letting the most poorly paid opt-out of compulsory superannuation might be the fairest way to fix a system. Now, Labor has attacked the plan, saying it's a despicable act on people's future retirement, and the proposal, no doubt, is going to be fiercely opposed by the superannuation industry and banks, which make their profits investing in earnings that the government requires goes into super accounts. But any such changes would also run counter to Treasurer Scott Morrison's assertion that the government wants to change the super system to help more people save for their retirement and reduce the reliance on the age pension. Yeah, well, if they do that, then, of course, it, you put a big burden on in the future on uh, on welfare. That's right. Now, the surprising rally in the iron ore price is expected to provide Treasurer Scott Morrison with a budget windfall. Iron ore has made an extraordinary recovery. It's clawed its way above 50 bucks. So on Monday, it closed at 51.52, and December, it plunged to 38.30, the lowest in six years. Now, that's welcome news for the Turnbull government, now struggling to put its budget together, and Treasury had forecast uh, an iron ore price of $39 a tonne. Now, adjusting for the rally, taking shipping costs into account would put the iron ore price at about $44 a tonne. And Deloitte Access Economics Director Chris Richardson reckons the iron ore rally could give Scott Morrison a $1.2 billion windfall. Yeah, well... (laughs) We need it. That's right. Now, uh, some fascinating corporate news, Gary. Australia's largest dairy farm operations to be sold off to a Chinese company. Treasurer Scott Morrison has approved the sale of Van Diemen's Land Company to China's Moon Lake investors at a purchase price of $280 million. Now, the company milks about 19,000 cows on 25 farms in northwest Tasmania. It supplies Fonterra, the world's biggest exporter of dairy products. And Morrison said he'd consider the national interest test and sale was subject to new conditions requiring it to comply with Australian tax law. So the Chinese are buying up the Australian dairy industry. Yeah, I know. It's a bit of a worry, actually. And uh, interesting that uh, Morrison's looking at uh, Chinese uh, abiding by Australian tax laws. Absolutely. Now, US Group GSO Capital Partners has thrown a $927 million uh, US lifeline to embattled steel and iron group Arium 
battling for survival. Now, um, Arium, which has been bleeding cash at a rate of more than 500 million a year and burdened with a debt of more than 2 billion, will be recapitalized as part of a deal which could save the iconic Wyala Steelworks and thousands of South Australian jobs. Now, last week, the steel mining consumables and iron ore producer signaled to the market that was a risk of it falling into administration unless it could refinance its debt and restructure itself. Now, the capital injection will retire existing debt, fund a restructure of the steel and iron ore businesses, and Arium's finances, which include the four big banks, are going to take a haircut, lose half their exposure. Shareholders have put their money in Arium's $754 million capital raising in 2014 will also do their money. And if the lenders agree to the term, GSO will have warrants enabling it to acquire 15% of Arium's expanded capital base and two board seats. Now, GSO, of course, is a credit and alternative investment arm of global investment giant Blackstone. Now, the other bit of news is that BHP has responded to its first half loss of $7.9 billion Aussie by slashing its dividend. The cut was savage. The dividend has been hacked to $0.16 cents US fully flanked. That's down 74% from $0.62 cents US. It's the first time the world's biggest miner has cut its dividend since 1988. And the company's new dividend policy moves to a payout ratio of 50% of underlying earnings. And BHP overhauled its management structure with the departure of Jimmy Wilson, President of Iron Ore, and Tim Cutt, President of Petroleum, leaving the country, and the chain structure will see BHP billet and focusing on geographic regions that rather than allocating roles according to minerals. Yeah, well, the whole of the resources industry got problems and BHP's the biggest in there and uh, its problems are pretty big, aren't they? That's right. Now, taxi booking app GoCatch is launching a new ride-sharing service in Australia, GoCar, to compete with Uber in the $5.4 billion taxi market. Now that Uber's been legalised in New South Wales, it will launch in Sydney before expanding into the Australian Capital Territory and other states as taxi regulations are reviewed. Now, GoCart's pricing is going to match UberX price during peak hour, but charge passengers more during morning and after-work peak hours, as well as on Friday and Saturday nights. Now, a 20-minute cab ride would cost 32.25 with UberX and GoCard during off-peak. During peak hours, the set price for GoCard is $47.09, but Uber has a surge pricing mechanisms and customers can pay as much as $55.41. So that's going to be interesting to watch. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. And again, it's you know I know it's well in the future, but Uber and all these other guys are interested in the autonomous car rising. That's right, yeah. 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 Now, uh, the other one is, of course, if you can't beat them, join them. After months of battling it out to take over ports and rail operator Asiano, QUB Holdings and Canada's Brookfield Asset Management are considering a joint bid, and the joint offer will be for $9.28 a share. Yeah, that's pretty much where Cuba and Brookfield were, though. It's only sense different, isn't it? That's right. And uh, and that's it for this week, Gary. And uh, next week, uh, we've got a terrific interview with Adrian Lovney from Cusco. He's going to be talking to us all about the, the banks. And the way payments are going to change and we're all going to be doing it in mobile and it's going to be interesting. No more waiting two days for uh, your money to show up. Uh, fascinating, really. And Adrian's well across this big, big move in uh, international banking. Yeah, I'm really, and that should be really good. And uh, until then, you can tune into us on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. In the meantime, stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.